Good morning. Um, we are continuing in our catechism this morning. Uh, last week, uh, the question, the questions are fo- uh, changing more about our Redeemer, Christ, was why must the Redeemer be truly human? And the answer was that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin and also that he might sympathize with our weakness. This week, the question, I will read the question and we'll read the answer together. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to reflect on our need, our state, and your provision. Our need is great. As it says in Ephesians, we are separated from you, having no hope and without God in the world. Father, uh, we, we can never get to the bottom of what it is to be with, without hope, no hope. That is was our condition. But as this great promise uh, continues in uh, Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I pray that our true condition, separated from you without hope, would weigh heavy on us so that we can better grasp what a great salvation is ours because of Christ. And because of Christ, uh, we see that you have provided for us and provided for us perfectly, giving us a Redeemer, Jesus, one who was fully human and thus able to sympathize with our weaknesses, and in addition, fully divine, so that he could perfectly obey and in his death absorb the wrath that rightfully should fall on us. Father, we marvel at your wisdom Who could have imagined such a plan? And we are staggered by the love which motivated this plan. Who else would shed his own blood for his enemies in order to make them friends? Father, I thank you that your concern, involvement in our lives has not ceased, but it is an ongoing reality. You are currently arranging all of our circumstances, both pleasant and hard, that we might enjoy you more. And even now, our Redeemer is interceding for us when we do not know how or what to pray. And so this splendid work of our Redeemer, human and divine, is ongoing. Father, we pray for your church in the world, the people that you have redeemed. Father, would you be giving them new eyes to see afresh the wonder of your great mercy and provision for them. Lord, may they be encouraged in the various places that they are. We pray for those who are proclaiming your word in ways large and small, that they would be encouraged in their proclamation and that you would be giving open ears uh, to hears. Father, we pray for the churches in our community 
There are many, and Father, I thank you for that, and I pray that uh, the gospel would be heard and received, and people would, with glad hearts, turn to you and put their hope in you. Father, we pray for our own church, that uh, because of this gospel, our love for you would grow, and Lord, our love for one another would grow as we see our commonality our greatest commonality, our need and provision. Father, I pray that our fellowship with one another would, would be rooted in, in our Redeemer. Lord, help us to be faithful in the various places where you've put us, in homes and workplaces and schools and places of transition. Lord, you are there, and I, I would pray that uh, we would... Look to be serving you and trusting you in those various uh, places. Father, as sec, uh, summer activities begin again uh, this Wednesday, I, I pray that uh, it would be a sweet time. We would enjoy uh, breaking bread together. Father, that is uh, such a place of, of fellowship and uh, we thank you that we can do it again. We thank you for the facility to do it. And I, I pray that you would bless the time. And as we consider uh, who you are uh, in this season, Lord, give us eyes to see uh, that we would not just grow intellectually, but that our heart's affection for you uh, would also be stirred. Uh, Father, I pray now for, for Daniel as he comes. I thank you for your spirit's work in him and even watching over him as he's prepared. And I pray now that as he comes, uh, you would be directing his, uh, what he says and, and Lord, uh, giving us open ears uh, to hear what you would say to us this morning through him. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen time in a long time the three through fives are going with the browns so i don't know how many there are but this is your cue you can go our scripture reading today will be from hosea chapter 2 verses 14 through 23 hosea chapter 2 verses 14 through 23 This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Echor a day of a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. 
And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall never and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. All right. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. As you've noticed from the scripture reading this morning, we're shifting from our spring study of the Gospel of Mark to the Old Testament books known as the Minor Prophets. Over the summer, we'll be hearing messages from each of these 12 books. Now, for many of us, these books are probably uncharted waters. We've now reached the point where our Jesus Storybook Bible has to be set aside because we don't have these stories in there anymore, except for Jonah. Why don't we always have Jonah? He was the worst. He's absolute worst, and he's always included in our kids' Bibles. Well, more on that later, I guess. My, my task this morning is a little different. Uh, let me tell you why. We come to God's Word with the desire to read and understand the meaning of the text. And the first step of this interpretive task is to understand what genre of scripture are we reading? Is it narrative? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Maybe it's a parable, apocalyptic literature. We don't rush straight to our outlines. We don't rush straight to a word study. We simply ask, what am I reading? And this makes sense because we experience this every day. I don't read a news article the same way I read a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, right? And sports writers write differently than novelists do. Because biblical prophecy is such a peculiar genre my first task this morning is to orient our minds towards a proper reading of these prophets and their writings. So I'm going to spend about 10 minutes teaching some introductory ideas before, before turning to our text in Hosea. So you get a little taste of uh, Lightbearers Institute this morning. All right, so let's start here. The value of our minor prophets. There is great value in reading Old Testament prophets. And the more you read the biblical prophecies, the more you get accustomed to the rhythms and the patterns of God speaking to his people through these prophets. It's kind of like when you move to a new city and you don't know your way around, right? I'm from Peelahatchee, Mississippi. After college, we moved to Dallas-Fort Worth. I couldn't get anywhere without a GPS for months, but after a while, you drive around, you drive around more, you start to find your way around. Things become familiar. And the same is true with our Bible. 
particularly when it comes to Old Testament prophets. But the first question we need to ask is who were Old Testament prophets? So there are three terms that are used interchangeably in the Bible for these prophets, and it's prophet, seer, or visionary, because this is what they did. God gave them a message. He called them, gave them a message, or they saw something that they were to uh, share with the, the people of God. They came from all walks of life. There was no school that you would go to to study to be a prophet. They were called out of their daily life by God. And these weren't exclusive to Israel. There was prophets that were from other places speaking truth in those places. Uh, we have, even in the minor prophets, we have Obadiah. Obadiah was a prophet to Edom, not to Israel or Judah. Or Nahum, he was a prophet that spoke against uh, Assyria. So all of these prophets, though their messages point back to the truths of the Torah, the truths of the Old Testament covenant. They're not teaching something new. They're not coming on the scene and saying, hey, I've got something new, a new way for you to follow God. They're trying to call people's hearts back to that original truth and those original commitments. What did these prophets do? Well, they primarily delivered messages from God through words, but many times they also received dreams and visions, and they lived out object lessons. We call these sign acts. They would do weird things. They would have things that they were told to do, and it was meant to serve as a living example of what God was trying to teach his people. They delivered oracles of judgment. This is what we think most of when we think about the prophets, the messages of judgment. And these messages came to the leaders of God's people, but also the public. They also delivered oracles of judgment against other nations, not just against Israel and Judah. They also delivered oracles of grace and hope for all people. My favorite parts of most of these minor prophets is this there's always this section as you read, and it seems so bad, and there's always this turn somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle of all this judgment, this but or yet, if you will turn to me, I'll return to you. What are some of these common themes, though? Because when we talk about these themes, these are kind of the, the tools that we're putting in our, our toolbox as we read and understand the prophets. One, first one I would have you look at is the day of the Lord. The day of Yahweh. This comes up over and over again. When the prophets speak of the day of the Lord, or sometimes you'll read on that day, that day, a very specific future day where there's a pouring out of the Spirit of God, there's cosmic events happening. It's a day of salvation for those who repent, but it's a day of judgment for the unrepentant. And it's a day where God establishes his reign and judgment in Zion. It's a future day of finality where everything comes together and the book gets closed. Another theme that we see is return or restore, restoration, where God pleads through the prophets, return to me and I will return to you. There are consequences to God's people and their rebellion, but after a time of discipline, there is always a promise of restoration. Just look at Hosea 12, 6. He says, But you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, always put your hope in God, 
Or Malachi 3.7, since the days of your ancestors you have turned from my statutes, you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Another theme is the character of God. I think this one's important as well. In Exodus, God gives the clearest and most concise definition of himself in scriptures. When he says this, I have it here. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. God says this to Moses. The Lord, Yahweh, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now this definition of the character of God is used by the prophets in a variety of ways. At the beginning of Hosea, Hosea 1.6, it's used to show that God's mercy is no longer operative. He says, I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. That switch is off. In Joel 2.13, though, it's a call to repentance due to God's compassion. Where he says, tear your hearts, not just your clothes. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And he relents from sending disaster. God is compassionate. We can turn back to him. In Jonah, remember, he's a terrible guy, right? Jonah laments over God's compassion. He says this, This is why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. Jonah is angry at God for sparing the city of Nineveh because he says, I knew who you were. I knew your character. I knew you were compassionate like this. Micah, in Micah 7, the nations are in awe of the compassion of God towards his people. So much so that they say, if he can forgive their sins, maybe he can forgive our sins. And then in Nahum, this is again judgment, jealous justice of God coming to Assyria for the wrongs and the atrocities that they have committed against God's people. This is God's character of justice coming forward. Lastly, the the thing that I would mention this morning is Zion. You probably see this word all the time in scripture. What's it, what's it mean though? Zion is the, the central location of God's fulfilled promises to judge the whole earth and to live among his people once more. It's bigger than just a geographical location. Zion is used to refer to a person, a people, and a remnant from all nations. So, There are many rich themes in prophecy. These are just ones that I'd call your attention to this morning. These themes, they should be understood within each book and as a whole and within the context of the whole Old Testament. Let's talk about the structure of these 12 books real quick. The order of these books. Why do we talk about the book of the 12? Well, it's because these 12 books were always preserved on a single scroll. They were bound together. And that makes sense, right? These are short books, and you would want to, you know, keep the, I don't know how long a scroll was in length, you know, but you've got to keep them put together. They, would, they were always recorded together. 
But what's the order of these books? Can we talk about an order to these books? We have larger sections of scripture that have a certain order, like Paul's letters. Paul's 13 letters are organized by size. They go from largest to smallest. We don't have that kind of order here in the Minor Prophets. We have somewhat of a loose chronology. Uh, You might not even be able to see that on the the screen. Uh, There's some chronology in what's going on here, but more so, there is a very tight theology in the ordering of these books. And how do you understand any unit of Scripture? It's with context, right? If the Minor Prophets should be read as a unit with 12 chapters, then we're unable to fully understand a part without understanding the wider purpose. So when we read something like Hosea, we we say, okay, where is it in Hosea? And how does this fit into the minor prophets? How does this fit into Old Testament prophecy? And then the Old Testament as well. The best way to consider the minor prophets is picturing them like a stained glass window. The historical context, the life of the prophets, the style of writing, all of these things are important, and all of these unique pieces fit together. But what makes it catch your breath beautiful is when the light of Christ shines through the message of the prophets, and everything becomes absolutely clear. So this morning, with all these things in mind, Let's now turn our attention to Hosea. Now, Hosea is the first book in the 12 Minor Prophets. It introduces many of the themes found in other books of prophecy. Hosea's message speaks directly to the situation of Israel in the 8th century. And it's not really possible for us to understand what's going on in Hosea without an awareness of that situation in Israel. If you remember from our study of the life of David, David's son Solomon took control of a united kingdom. He built the temple. He brought peace. But then after Solomon came war, unrest, and division. The kingdom was divided Israel to the north and Judah to the south. At this time in history, the northern kingdom of Israel as a whole was enjoying economic prosperity and stability. They were at peace with the southern kingdom of Judah, which was also flourishing under the longtime rule of King Uzziah. They were a major trade route between the empire of Assyria to the north and the empire of Egypt to the south. And Israel benefited from that situation. But the prosperity of the nation was not shared by all. Many of the small farmers had lost their lands because of the repeated military incursions from Assyria, as well as years of drought that were forcing them to mortgage their properties. Farms, pastures, and vineyards that were meant to pass from family to family for generations were being bought up by wealthy landowners. What had developed was this huge, almost unbridgeable gap between rich and poor. Now, religiously, things appeared to be going well in Israel. Worship of Yahweh was popular. The worship of God was popular. All of the sacrifices and feasts were being kept with attention to detail, great ceremony, sparing no expense. 
However, alongside the worship of God, idolatry was rampant. And respect for the laws of God's covenant, those are non-existent. The people were in fact treating Yahweh as any other idol, as if he could be pacified or bribed. It's into this context that Hosea receives a message from the Lord, one which takes the imagery of Israel's unfaithfulness right into the family life of this prophet. Chapters, there's two main sections of Hosea, chapters one through three and four through 13. The first section pictures the people of Israel as God's wife, along with the consequences of their infidelity. Their actions put their identity as the people of God at risk. Hosea's life serves as this living example. Remember, sign acts is this living example of God and his people. In verse three, uh, God, uh, Hosea marries and has three children, and then look what God tells Hosea to name his children. The first is Israel. When we read it as Jezreel in English, we miss this phonetic emphasis in the Hebrew because Israel is very similar to Israel, which is Israel as we know it. This child's name means God sows or God scatters because this is what God says is going to happen. Because of their unfaithfulness, he's going to scatter them among the nations. He's going to sow them far from this land that they know. The next child's name means no compassion. Remember, this character of God that's been applied to his people is no longer operative right now. And the third child's name means not my people. The devastating truth of these names is how unrecognizable God's people have become. Hosea chapter uh, 4 through 13 present a series of sermons in which God's building his legal case against Israel and lamenting over their immorality. Most often, God is responding to the failure of Israel's leaders. He calls out the priests who have misled them in worship. He calls out the elders because they've loved drinking and promiscuity more than justice. And he calls out the unrighteousness of the kings and princes because they have failed to lead the people's hearts back to God. And yet, in the midst of all these harsh words, there are brief insights into the nature of God. His deep love, the hurt that he feels over Israel's behavior, his desire for them to return to him, but also his justice and the inevitability of their national destruction if there is no repentance. It's the constancy of God's love that is the most common theme in this book. His fidelity compared to their infidelity. In the past, he has blessed and cared for them. In the present, he longs to restore them. But the future, their future end, is still in question, depending upon their response to these calls to repent. See, they had been allowed peace and prosperity. God's people have only run towards other gods and misused the good things that God had given them. 
the grain, the wine, the fresh oil, the silver, and the gold, which was all meant to bring glory, honor, and international praise to God, they had turned and given to idols made by their own hands. In chapter 2, verse 9, God says that he's taking it all back. All of the favor, the blessings will be removed. Because verse 13 says, She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. God is poetically saying, my people took the good gifts that I lovingly gave and used them to chase after lesser loves. They forgot my love. I know that many of us have personal experiences with infidelity in marriage. Friends, parents, family members, maybe even personal experience. Even if you haven't, can't we all just stop for a moment? Think about the pain and the heartbreak that unfaithfulness brings to a relationship. In marriage, you have two people holding hands, looking each other in the eyes and saying, I promise to place your good above mine now and always. I promise to honor you, to love you, to cherish you until death do us part. I commit myself to you alone. But then those same people become dissatisfied. They feel unfulfilled. Then comes the restlessness and the wandering, and they stumble onto a path that leads to secrets, lies, broken promises. When infidelity is exposed, it unleashes a storm of pain, finger-pointing, anger, and guilt. We hear God saying in 2.13, she followed her lovers, but she forgot me. And what we expect next is anger, vindication, yelling, and door slamming. Forget me? No, forget you. But church, look at verse 14. God says, therefore, behold, look, look at this. I will allure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I'll give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. In these verses, we see God graciously, tenderly turning back the clock. It's like he's saying, hey, remember when you stood before Mount Sinai as it was covered with clouds of fire, and you promised to be my people, and I promised to be your God? Let's get, let's get back to that. Remember when I brought millions of you through the wilderness, giving you food and water so that you could come to this land full of fields and vineyards that you didn't even have to plant? Let's get back to that level of trust. And it wasn't always easy. Remember the valley of Achor? means the valley of trouble. This is a story from the beginning of Joshua. Days after they've crossed the Jordan River and they already fail. Some of you fell in a big way there, but it wasn't the end of the promise, right? He's saying, I am the God who can turn trouble and failure into a doorway of hope. God loves his people, but he knows that the solution to their heart problem 
It's not found in the past. It's found in the future. Look at this language in verse 16. And in that day, remember the day of the Lord? In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall remember, they will be remembered by name no more. This is future heart change. There will be affection and intimacy for God as husband, not as God as this oppressive master, which is what Baal means. Remember in verse 13, Israel forgot their true God. Now she will forget her false gods. What God is going to do through a regenerated heart in the new covenant could never be accomplished through their obedience to the old covenant laws. It's not just their affection for God that's going to be restored. Look at verse 18. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. This is nothing less than a return to the peace and the order found in Genesis 1 and 2. This future covenant, work, it's, it, this work is going to undo the curse of Adam and Eve's fall, restoring environmental balance and bringing peace among the nations. Can you imagine in our day a bigger miracle than this? How, how, the, how will Israel know this future day has arrived? Well, it's going to look a lot like a wedding. Verse 19 I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. What a picture. The bride of God. It's one that we see again at the end of our Bible in Revelation 19, where a vast multitude from every nation is called the bride of the Lamb. She's given fine clothes to wear, bright and pure, and brought with great celebration into the presence of God forever. Revelation 22, 4, they see the face of God. They know their God. Did you notice the repeated word in verses 19 and 20? Betroth. Three times God emphasizes his eternal commitment to his people. You know what this reminds me of? In the Gospel of John, right after Jesus is arrested, his good friend Peter swears he will die with Jesus. But instead, before the night is out, three times he denies that he even knows Jesus. At the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus' resurrection, while he's sitting there having breakfast with his friends, what does he ask Peter? Do you love me? Of course, Peter replies, you know that I love you. Three times in total, Jesus asks, do you love me? And each time Peter affirms his love for Jesus, each time Jesus restores Peter to the work that is set before him. Friends, none of us are too far removed from the love of God. He knows our failures. He knows our infidelity. And he came himself as the man Jesus to pay the price 
of our unfaithfulness. This work of Jesus in us is so powerful and so complete that God can look at us now as new people, known for righteousness, justice, love, mercy, and faithfulness. Look at verse 21. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Israel. I will sow her for myself in the land. He knows what's happened here. He takes that, that same word that was used negatively, that God sows, right? I'm, he said, I'm going to scatter you among the nations because of your unfaithfulness. What's he saying now? He said, I'm going to take you. I'm going to plant you. I'm going to sow you somewhere immovable forever. I'm going to sow her for myself in the land. And then he says, I'll have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This future reversal of the seemingly hopeless state of God's people during the time of Hosea will be completely reversed. The Hebrew word here for answer or respond that's repeated in these verses it can also be appropriately translated as sing. God's new covenant work is so complete that his people, the blessings that they enjoy, all of creation joins in joyful worship. I have three things in the way of application from this this morning. The first, the first concerns what happens when we have been betrayed, lied to, or cheated on? See, there are three miracles that have to happen when it comes to infidelity. I say miracles because these are not things that we can muster up by our own strength alone. This is a work of God in people. First miracle is forgiveness. It takes someone understanding what Paul means when he says, forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. Our offenses, immeasurable. Our debt, unpayable. All miraculously forgiven. And Paul says, forgive others this way. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. But Christians, we are held to a higher standard of forgiveness than the world. The second miracle is patience. It is a long road back to trust being restored. It's a long road back to finding that love that you had at first. In the Bible, often we get patience in English, but do you remember sometimes it's translated as long-suffering. Long-suffering. That's what patience is. That's what patience is, long-suffering. Walk this road together You've got to bring other people along with you, restoring this trust. And people, walk with other people who are hurting. Get into other people's mess. Care for them. The third miracle that happens when infidelity has occurred has to be repentance. And we know that true brokenness, a turning away from sin, it is a miraculous work of God's Spirit in our lives. And it's the same when it comes to issues of sin. 
John 3, 19 through 21 talks about people. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. God is the one who accomplishes truth in your life. God is the one who helps to restore you after these failures and your love of the darkness. True repentance also will bear genuine fruits of repentance. It's not just in words, but it's deeds that come out of a heart of repentance, especially if it's met with forgiveness and patience. Second point of application has to do with satisfaction and fulfillment. See, in Western culture, we are richer, we have more leisure time, we have more opportunities, more freedoms, and at the same time, there's more depression, anxiety, divorce, burnout, and suicide. We have more of everything except fulfillment. Israel's demand for a king like the other nations. They're longing for fulfillment. Israel's pursuit of other gods. They're dissatisfied. They're trying to find what works. Eve, when she sees the fruit of the tree that she hasn't tasted and that promises some hidden knowledge, she reveals her dissatisfaction. The husband who commits adultery with another woman, all craving something more and never fully satisfied. If we crave lasting and complete fulfillment, then we must go to the source of that fulfillment. John chapter 4, to the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus, uh, Jesus says this. I mean, talk about someone who's chasing satisfaction. Jesus says this, this woman's had five husbands, and she's working on number six right now. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. When we deny our true identity, our true identity as a genuine human made in the image of God and our our need for that, we're left hopelessly lost dissatisfied because we're not made to be satisfied by the things of this world. C.S. Lewis said this, that if I find myself in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I I was made for another world. A life found in Christ, a life lived for Christ with eternity in view. Church, this is the only path to satisfaction. This is the only path to fulfillment. One final point of application. This has to do with loving others. Maybe you're fortunate enough not to have been lied to. Maybe you haven't had promises broken in your life. But I think we all can admit that there are some people that we find hard to love. But church, God has called you as a Christian to a higher standard of love than the world. Just look at the example of Hosea. I hope you got your Bible open still. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to me, 
Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So this is what happened in Hosea. Hosea marries Gomer, has these kids, and then Gomer leaves. She goes chasing after other men. And now God is telling Hosea, go again and love her. Because she's like Israel's. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. Hosea goes out and redeems his own wife from another man. For real. And, and God, God sends us out with this command, go again and love. Brothers and sisters, we don't have the privilege of, privilege of excuses when it comes to loving other people. To whom much is given, much is required, right? We have been shown great love. And that is now the starting line of how we should love others. We want to say, I don't have it in me, but you do. It is a challenge to love especially when people hurt us. But this is, the real, this is where real maturity comes into play. The command to love, it is for everyone. It's free from your intellect. It's free from your gifts and your talents. It's free from any power or influence that you have. You're simply called to love others. Simply loving your enemy, loving your betrayer, loving your neighbor, this is where your godliness stands out. This is the clearest defining trait of God. He is love. And Jesus is the one saying to us, if you want to look like me, it's going to look and it's going to feel like dying. Take up your cross. Follow me. May we all see the faithful eternal love of Jesus. And may the God who knew us before the foundation of the world and loved us even then, grant us the strength to love, forgive, repent, and find ultimate fulfillment only in him. Let's pray. Father, we look at the work of the gospel, the redemption of your people, and in some ways it, it doesn't make sense. to In the eyes of the world, that type of love does not make sense. Often in our life, your call, your command for us to love others, even when we've been hurt, when we've been wronged, when in the eyes of the world we are justified in withholding love, you call us to that higher standard. And we confess that we don't quite understand it, we don't get it, and we don't do it all the time. But Father, we're asking that you teach us. You continue to teach us through your word the ways that you have loved unfaithful people, and the way you have shown us how we now should live in our new life of restored love and faithfulness before you. So begin teaching us that even this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.